As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On the pod today, we have Snapchat's head of news and the host of Snapchat's Good Luck America, journalist, friend of the pod, Peter Hamby. Exciting. It's great. Okay, before we begin, a little housekeeping. 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 Okay. Pod Save the World this week. Who's on it? Who do we got? We have a, a friend of the pod before there were pods at all, Heather Higginbottom, <laughs> who Deputy Secretary of State, uh, worked with all of us on a number of campaigns along the way and in the White House. She's a brilliant woman, uh, led a lot of the refugee vetting efforts and other things. You guys are going to want to tune in. Also, please, if you haven't yet, go subscribe to Anna Marie Cox's new podcast with friends like these. It's great. Already doing great. She did a great podcast last week. It's a juggernaut riding on the juggernaut. Exactly. And also, tomorrow night... For Trump's joint session speech, um, we are going to do another live stream with our friends at Funny or Die reacting to the speech. Crooked Media Live. Crooked Media Live. So go to uh, Funny or Die's Facebook page, and uh, I'll also be on Crooked Media's Facebook page as well. And Anna will be there. And Anna will be there. The whole crew. The whole Crooked Media crew, guys. It's going to be great. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-S-A. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast. A village in India where everyone's name is a song. A boiling river in the Amazon. A spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Let's start with the Oscars. We actually have on the pod today an accountant from PricewaterhouseCoopers who's going to tell us what happened last night. 
Hello. <laughs> it is me, Joe America. I have a new job at PricewaterhouseCoopers. <laughs> I love this country. You can get a job doing anything you want. You stand beside Leonardo DiCaprio, the man who got eaten by bear in that film last year, and you can just hand out whatever envelopes you want. I saw Warren Beatty, and this woman, well, she looked like Faye Dunaway. I think she was Faye Dunaway. And I hand the envelope, and I say, let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> that was right. something, guys. Yeah. All right, that, we're, you Tommy, know what? Tommy left the Crooked Media Oscar party before bored. that happened. I was and boy, did you miss out? Yeah, yeah. there. Um, there were some gasps in the living room. I, Look. I know this isn't actually true, but I do feel like this kind of an incident mm. affects gay people more. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just, there was, you could hear it in West Hollywood. You just, there was this one. People were flipping over cars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, was a, there, was, there was a riot in front of Rage. <laughs> I love the La La fan. Yeah, a lot of businesses, a lot of businesses recovering today. Okay, that's enough about that. Let's start with the DNC race, which happened on Saturday. Tom Perez is our new chairman. Friend of the pod, Tom Perez. We launched his career. This is what we like to say here. Yep. Okay, so. Perez wins one of the second ballot. In the first ballot, he was he missed he missed winning by half a vote, which is funny. I didn't know you could do half half a vote in the DNC. Either. Apparently, like Americans abroad or something got a half uh, a vote. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so there's been a lot of angst, anger, disappointment among uh, Keith Ellison supporters, uh, a lot of Bernie supporters among the Ellison supporters, and so you know Perez tried to stem this by immediately naming Ellison as the deputy chair of the DNC. But I want to talk about this because we get a lot of questions from people on Twitter that said, you know, how big of a deal is this? You know, is this splitting the party? Is the DNC chair that important? So I think we should sort of cover that quickly before we move on to the joint session stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like this became a kind of proxy fight, which it didn't have to become. And that's actually not Keith Ellison's fault. And it's not the Bernie supporters fault. It really is the way it was handled. I don't know. If you've cared a lot about who is running the DNC for your entire life, it's totally reasonable to care a lot about this race. If you haven't, you probably shouldn't. Because at the end of the day, Tom Perez is a very progressive individual. He's going to lead. He's going to organize. He's going to raise money. He's going to recruit candidates. He's going to do a great job at this. He's not going to be on the ballot. This isn't Hillary versus Bernie all over again. That's a a ridiculous way to think about it. it. It's totally fair to to feel like the more progressive candidate didn't win, and that might be disappointing, but like, Ellison's still going to be a huge part of the party going forward and part of the team. It's great that Ellison is now vice chair, and also it means that he gets to stay in the House. Right? Deputy chair. There's dep- a deputy sorry, chair and a vice chair. Whatever. Who gives a shit? Mike Blake, the de- Mike Blake, the, Mike Mike Blake is the vice chair. chair. Dismissive little. Our good friend from the I just the mean the campaign. terms don't matter. It's great that Mike Blake is vice <laughs> yeah. chair. I don't know the difference between a deputy chair and a vice chair. But regard- Most people don't. That's not a problem. Right. That's my point. <laughs> Here's what I'd say. Number one, the DNC chair is largely a fundraising role. Okay, and it's a in an organizational role, so that's number. So it's not as important as you might think. But I completely understand the frustration of the Ellison supporters. What I would say to them is, it is extremely challenging to run an outsider in an election that is voted on by largely insiders. That the DNC members are insiders. So if this is your first test on how to build a more progressive outsider Democratic Party, it's just a tough one to do. But you did succeed by running Keith Ellison. You did succeed in moving and making sure that there was a progressive DNC chair because Perez is progressive, Ellison's progressive, and now you also have El- Ellison as deputy chair. He's got a very big voice in what happens in the DNC. And I would just say, like, get, you know, you don't have to support Tom Perez, but give him a chance to prove himself. Right. Judge him by right. the decisions he makes, by the policies he has, and one thing that he should do, and that Ellison has promised to do, and I don't think as Perez had committed to this yet, but they absolutely should reinstate the ban on 
donations from lobbyists in the right. DNC that Obama put in stupid. place and Debbie Wasserman Schultz for some stupid reason took the ban yeah, away. If we want to argue we're better than them on this stuff, then we have to be better than them, better than the Republican Party. Yes, it's, you we know should what? not accept these don't tell, don't tell me that the fucking party needs the money from the lobbyists to survive and to, to compete against the Republicans. It's the, in the era of grassroots fundraising that is completely not bullshit. At all Let's also just remember that the enemy is not Tom Perez or Keith Ellison. It's Debbie Wasserman Schultz. <laughs> John just spit out his water on his phone. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, this, it, it really is a shame that this became this kind of a battle. And that really is on, that is Tom Perez's fault for when he got in the race. Absolutely true. But now it's done. We need to come together. We can't focus on this. And all these people are saying, like, no, the Democratic Party doesn't listen to us. Keith Ellison has a huge role in this party. Get over it. Okay, so we have a DNC chair. Hooray. Yay. Um, let's move on to the joint session. Tomorrow night, uh, Donald Trump gives his first addressed to a joint session of Congress. It's not called the State of the Union. You give the State of the Union after the first year, blah, 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 blah. It's a joint session speech. It's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> that was an interesting intro. So, okay. So we have two, <laughs> two former speechwriters in here. My question for you guys is, what is it like writing a speech like this where you know there are going to be tens of millions of people watching, lots of eyeballs, but your ability to be innovative and write something new or different is so limited because of the structure of the speech itself. I think I think there is there is no other speech where you spend so much time and effort for a speech that has an ever shortening shelf life. It is a complete waste of time. <laughs> so you feel like it was forgettable. <laughs> well, no. It's, I mean, as as the years have gone on, it used to be that president gives a State of the Union uh, or joint session speech, and you could get press out of it for like a week, right? The president goes on the road, they sell all the different parts of the agenda in the speech, mm-hmm. there's a lot of coverage on it. You leak in advance. Now, in the age of Twitter and everything else, like by Wednesday afternoon when Trump tweets something crazy, everyone will forget about the speech and that'll be that. Right. Unless, unless something, I should have, I just jinxed it. Something truly crazy will happen at the State of the Union now, right. I mean, two- and we'll be talking about it. But it's just, but the amount of effort you put into it to get to your question, Tom, is, um, it's like a month before, yeah, two months before you ha- start having the first meeting, meetings with people. It's a little less time when it's the first speech because you have to put the government together. Um, I actually remember the first the first speech we gave. We did not have like all the cabinet nominees in place mm-hmm. and everyone in the government. So, like, we focused on healthcare, energy, and education as like Obama's three priorities. And so, we largely wrote the speech with the help of Heather Higginbottom, who you're interviewing on Pod Save the World, mm-hmm. who dealt with some of the uh, education stuff and healthcare. Heather Zeichel did energy stuff, and there's like a couple, and then Ben Rhodes was working on foreign policy, right. national security, and that was the crew that basically wrote the first one. So, so <laughs> would you guys divide and conquer sections? Is that how you do this? Like, how do you weave yeah. together something like that? Yeah, on the speech team, once we got past the opening and the ending of the State of the Union. Um, all of the policy sections, we would sort of farm yeah, out to different speech Yeah, I did an energy writers. section. You did. I remember you, doing an energy you did, section. You would do energy, technology, and science. Frankel yeah. usually, Adam Frankly usually did education. Yeah, and then Ben Rhodes did all the foreign policy and domestic I do stuff. think, though, like, even though the speech's shelf life is not what it was, there are two ways in which it's important. Um, one is it's the coverage of it isn't as important as a normal speech because it is millions of people watching it and getting it mm-hmm. without a filter. And often it's the case that the speech is quite boring, but it's only really boring to the press corps and political people that follow everything. It actually is good. You know, people watching at home that don't so, follow things as closely wh- actually really like it. And then the second thing is it's clarifying for the administration. It forces you to that's true. get around a set of policies. Is there one moment in any of his speeches that you guys remember that jumps out of you that was memorable? Man. Blanks. Blanks. Is, I, I mean, I remember happened. the joke stuff. Yeah, right. good jokes, good jokes, bad jokes. I remember yeah. salmon, good joke. Salmon. 
spilled milk bad joke. I tried to give you something better. Yeah. Remember? It was love, love it wrote the spilled milk joke. I tell that to everyone. No, 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 many, no. Many people no, are saying. Now listen, many people. The joke was something. What was it? Don't it's cry. Was over. Obvious joke. There was that a you joke. That, that, what was the we joke? We all know that. What? But anyway, hey, this is awful radio. Can you explain what you're talking about? I... <laughs> Go. There's a really bad vibe in here today, guys. It's <laughs> a great vibe. Talk He's lying. Anyway, um, Tommy, sometimes you remember the endings of these things. That's about yeah, it. I remember the moments. I remember the real people in the box who'd stand up, who were highlighted, like a yeah. returning service member, or, you know, whomever it might be. I mean, I remember the first lady sort of hugging people. There are moments, but there were more human interaction than the words that came out of his mouth. I always loved the moment in Obama's one of the State of the Unions where he ended by talking about the flag that the SEALs mm-hmm. in uh, the, the, the Bin Laden raid gave him. He ended with that one. Um, There's another story about I don't know. There's there's these anecdotes at the end that are more memorable. But most of the begin the most of that middle of that speech, no one will ever remember. Right. Right. It's that flag famously boring. <laughs> it's famously boring. That flag is in the front hall of the new Obama office in oh, DC. Yeah, by the you way, saw that. it's amazing. You're like, oh, okay, that is stark. Um, is there anything? If there's something less memorable, uh, it might be the Democratic or Republican response oh, yes. to the State of the Union. Those are some; those are graveyards of up-and-coming politicians. It's, if you're working for a politician who is asked to give the response, <laughs> Run. You're, what you say to your boss is, don't do it. Don't you do say, it. What you say to your boss is, no, they didn't call. So, <laughs> so, uh, so we have Marco Rubio with the water. Marco Bob, Rubio Bob, drank water all the time. If yeah, anyone remembers that, it's almost as if it's almost as if the response like is really clarifying, like the the pressure of it and the the fact that you have to do it at such a smaller scale than the president uh, reveals who you really are. Yeah, like yeah, it yeah. just exposed Bobby Jindal, it oh. exposed Marco Rubio. The um, I, I always thought it seems crazy to me that we don't do it like a rally. Like I don't understand get, why we don't do a rally. Used to say that in two thousand six. Why wouldn't you get like a, a governor, lieutenant governor, fill a big you know, some local Senate chamber or something full of people and do it that way. I don't know. Because otherwise Bo- it looks like a hostage state. Right. Bobby Jindal, remember, he like walked down the steps and he looked like uh, Dennis the Menace and he just sort of won the you know, eight minute speech was just the worst thing he's ever done in his career. Yeah. No. So the Democrats have Steve, Governor Steve Bashir from Kentucky doing it. That's um, interesting. Yeah. I think part of it is, you know, red state. A lot of white working class people there. He's a Democratic governor. But then um, he's had a lot of success in rolling people in Kentucky Obamacare, Connect. which is not called. Yeah, it's called uh, KYNet. KYNet. Uh, KYNet, oh, okay. yeah. Uh, Don't let Obama touch my KYNet. Right. <laughs> uh, so that's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a real thing. That, <laughs> that's what um, I think... It, we we could be screwing the name there, but I think that's what it's called. <laughs> anyway, and a lot of people like it because it's not called Obamacare. Connect, yeah. Kentucky Connect? Well, yeah, um, what did I think it was? That's wrong. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so let's talk about the backdrop, the political backdrop for Trump first joint session the backdrop the backdrop political the all the goings backdrop. on the, yeah what's, what's happening that's my segue <laughs> there love it okay oh, nbc wall street journal poll has trump at 44 percent approval 48 percent disapproval so here's the good news for trump in this poll he's at 85 percent approval among republicans here's here's a tough one he's at 55 percent approval from the one-third of respondents who had voted for a third-party candidate didn't vote at all or said that they supported Trump mostly to oppose Hillary. Those are the voters that we need to watch. So he's still a little bit above water with them. That's a bit of a uh, that's a bit of a catch-all category. I know. I was going to say it's the Wall Street Journal was reported this, and mm. NBC didn't in theirs. So it's funny to mm. see in the little the bias. But um, he also still has a net positive rating on changing business as usual, getting things done, and jobs in the economy. 
That's that's key. Bad news for Trump. He's the only president in the history of modern polling to begin his first term with a net negative approval rating. <laughs> He's disliked, untrustworthy, wrong temperament. Those are all the negative approval ratings. 59% don't like him personally, and 52% agree his troubles are not typical growing mm-hmm. pains, but unique to him. There were similar numbers. There was a Washington Post story out of Iowa about Iowans feeling disappointed. And, yes. and any administration is going to get the one month in, two month in, XY, ex-president's voters feeling disappointed story, and it's right. going to drive the staff insane. But, you know, he was at 42, 49, approved, disapproved with Iowans. And it was lower in eastern Iowa, which is the blue-collar area that is the reason Hillary Clinton lost. And so this does not, this does not bode well for these people feeling like he's on their side, um, especially if they start fail to go through with any of the things that create jobs or they take away their health care. Well, so here's a question. Does it matter for his legislative agenda if Trump doesn't get any support from Democrats as long as he's still popular among Republicans? I saw some people. I saw what Sam, does that mean? Well, I saw, I saw, I saw Sam Stein on, on Twitter said, look, it doesn't, as long as he's got these numbers, support among Republicans, he's going to be able to get whatever he wants done legislatively. That's totally wrong. Well, yeah. Daryl Issa came out in favor of a special prosecutor because yeah. he's in a tough race. Yeah. Right. Daryl Issa, keep in... Right close to us here in Los Angeles, only won by one percentage point, um, and his district his district was won by Hillary Clinton. First time a Democrat ever won or- an Orange County district like that. And he on Friday called for a special prosecutor to oversee investigation yep. into Trump contacts yeah, so with Russia. There are enough Republican House members in vulnerable districts to make it hard for him to pass things. Full stop. Mm-hmm. And. As long as that's true, his overall approval rating does matter. Making Trump less popular does matter. I mean, we're already seeing it with healthcare. I mean, this yeah. the fact that healthcare is stuck in this sort of limbo between the Paul Ryan Freedom Caucus version and the Donald Trump I just want to not deal with this version. Uh, is I want to get into this. To this is fascinating. Is that there is a split in the Trump administration, right? Between Trump campaigned on this is populist, different kind of Republican platform, right? And one side of the populism was nativism. And, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment, you know, this is where we get the travel ban from and all this. But the other side was, I'm going to be a different kind of Republican in that he promised to not cut Medicare, Social Security and Medicaid. He said he was going to bring jobs back. He was anti-trade, right? All this populist stuff. And that's sort of like the Bannon wing of his administration. But his vice president is Mike Pence, traditional free market conservative. Mm -hmm. He's dealing with Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, same thing. And so... His pop, Trump's so-called like different kind of Republican populist economic agenda is going to run headfirst into Pence and Ryan and all the Republicans on the Hill. Mm-hmm. The problem for those guys is the constituency for tax cuts for millionaires paid for by cutting people's health care is so small right now. And right. the Republicans have never understood this. It's, um, it's a reminder, too, that like Donald Trump did not get elected on – like. Paul Ryan does the Trump populism stuff to get to the regulatory tax agenda. That's his goal. Donald Trump is not there. Like, Donald Trump's populism was the goal in and of itself. He came up through the middle. And so the idea that he's going to turn around and back this sort of crazy agenda, which has never been popular. If Donald Trump campaigned on cutting health care for people so you could give millionaires tax cuts, he wouldn't have won. Right. That was his message. (laughs) So um, it is interesting. And and you're seeing, like, so then Trump meets with Kasich. Uh, the other day, in case it was like, no, you should not cut Medicaid to all these states, healthcare for poor people. And Trump's like, oh, I like his plan. That's that, good. That report was fascinating to me. You, you can tell Trump has absolutely no idea what he's doing. He's flailing around for a path forward on Obamacare. So when Kasich comes in to pitch his random thing, he's like calling in the HHS secretary and a bunch of aides to say, hey, jot this down. I think this guy's got some notes. It's interesting because it, it's um, 
it's a little bit of Trump bumping up against the fact that he doesn't have the right team around him, right? If you could just sort of like swap out Stephen Miller for like Heather Higginbottom, he could he'd be okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like he'd be cool with that. He just he just doesn't have the right people giving him ideas, and and he's got that spidey sense. It's like I don't know if this is the right thing for me to be doing, and all these dead-eyed conservatives are telling me I should do it. Well, it's it, the classic governing versus campaigning thing, right? I mean, being for something is really hard. He and had the, yeah. being opposed to it is very easy. He had this moment this morning where he was um. He was asked about healthcare, and he and and he said, uh, "We're gonna have a plan. It's gonna be great, man. It's complicated. Yeah, nobody knew. How nobody compli- knew how complicated. Nobody knew how nobody. complicated it was. First of all, I love that because even in every small moment, it's like nobody knew means I didn't know. But also, well, I say the one thing that every Democrat and Republican in Congress could agree on together is that healthcare is super fucking complicated. <laughs> but, but, that yeah. is, you get bipartisan agreement on that. But 100%. once again, only and only only someone who only fucking reads the chirons on cable news would think that healthcare is simple, and that is our president. <laughs> um, but you see, these town hall protests are having an effect, like Kasich who's a more of a moderate Republican, and then you've got, or, or at least traditional conservative Republican, and then you have Representative Mo Brooks, who's like a big Trump ally from Alabama, saying that the town hall protests are actually, it's they're making it possible to stop Obamacare repeal from happening. Like, they think this we might not be able to do it they because definitely these are. protests. And these protests are they're being so it. smart. My sister went to one in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the congressman, I think his name's Tom Garrett, refused to show up, but a thousand constituents did, and the local press did, and they're feeling the heat. And you got Marco Rubio, who out in 2009 Marco was Rubio. like, Marco Rubio in 2009 said, the Tea Party is real. Hey, elites, Tea Party protesters are real, and they're upset, and they don't want Obamacare. Now he's saying, oh, I'm not going to these town halls because people just want to yell at me because I'm Marco, and I'm sad. Marco Rubio basically admitting that he doesn't want to have a town hall because he knows it will look bad on camera when so people stupid. yell at him is the most. I mean, it's actually a completely true statement. Points for honesty. <laughs> Points for honesty for Marco Rubio. Yeah, it's, but like, um, he, the, it's like, of course, Marco Rubio is afraid what will happen if he looks bad on camera. There is no greater threat to Marco Rubio than that. <laughs> it's amazing to me. First of all, I don't know why Rubio would be afraid of a town hall. Um, he can shrink to any size and escape. Um, <laughs> He uh, so he gave this interview right where he's like, um, "Why would I hold a town hall? You know, people are just going to yell at me." By the way, also he, he's not a congressman, right? So it's not like he's worried about people coming in from outside of his district. It's not like people are traveling there from Georgia. He's doing it in Miami. It's right. a long commute to be a fake person <laughs> in Florida. Way. They're all they're all his constituents. Yeah. Um, anyway, Rubio sucks. <laughs> <laughs> what a coward! What a so coward! The, so we're already seeing this on the ground. Then between the town hall protests, there was one other really great sign from the weekend that didn't get as much covered. Democrats won the special election in Delaware that allowed them to remain hold control of the state Senate and all three branches of government in Delaware. It was um, State Senator Stephanie Hansen won in the 10th district. Here's what was interesting about it. Special election. This district voted 51-49 Democrat in uh, 2014. She won 58-41 with 40% turnout with, for a special election is like breaking records. So This was a huge deal. Delaware... Is locked. They got Delaware guys. <laughs> Joe Biden campaigned for. Well, but the swing was pretty big. I mean, that's a big. That's a big. Swing. I want you to know. This weekend, I came over to John's house after like four hours of demoralizing house hunting, and he was like jumping up and down, announcing this news to me. He was, was so excited. pumped about Delaware. This is something to watch. It's guys. great. It's actual votes. Awesome. We have actual yeah, votes. Georgia's coming up. Too. Votes are better than polls and analysis. So much better. <laughs> yeah, we got the George, we got the Georgia special coming up. Oh yeah, we're gonna we get we're gonna thing. get into that. We're guys. gonna get into that. Um, anyway, all right. So let's go back to the joint session. So. Let's talk about how a normal president with a 44% approval rating and really only strong support among his base would approach this joint session. What would you say? What would you what would you try to emphasize? 
I feel like it would start with a long apology, <laughs> uh, followed by an explanation as to how I'd been hoodwinked into hiring these evil goons, evil, silly people, uh, <laughs> taking out their vengeance on high school via, you know, national policymaking. Um, but other than that, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I mean, I think you would you would try to incorporate some contrition into your message and, and with a pivot of like a brighter future. But I do think the Bannon Steve Miller tone is one of just like absolute triumph. We are doing everything we said we were going to well, do. Yeah, it is going to be great. Forget even contrition. I mean, that would be great. But all you have to do is some some language about humility, humility, language about reaching out to the other side. I want to work with Democrats. I want to reach out to the voters who didn't vote for me. I'm going to try to work with everyone mm-hmm. on all these agenda items. They know they can't do this. They're not even going to try it. All their previews right now are saying, you know, Kellyanne Conway last week called him President Action, President Impact. They basically, they, they're trying to get over the fact that he's they not going to... They're letting her back on TV? I mean, they're letting yeah. her back on Yeah, well, it was <laughs> like her. on Sean Hannity's Town Hall at CPAC. So oh, right. It was like, well, that's not really it was TV. Training it's wheels. TV. Training wheels. Right. <laughs> um, no, so what they want to do is just convey this sense of action, momentum. He's getting things done because, as we saw in the poll, people still think he's someone who gets things done. The only problem with this, he really hasn't gotten anything Nothing. done. Nothing. <laughs> so, the, the, I mean, obviously the ban has been usually impactful, but that's held up in the courts right now. A lot of the other EOs have largely been symbolic. Uh, he has a lot of latitude on deportation, so he's been able to do stuff on that, but he hasn't passed any bills. I think the only bill they passed was a waiver to get Mattis as defense secretary. Right. It's the only bill he signed. It's all he has. By this time, when Obama gave his first speech, he had passed like a trillion dollar stimulus act, right. children's health insurance program, Wall Street reform was get was underway. Like all this stuff was happening by the time he did this. Right. Donald Trump has health care. There's not even a bill yet. There's no remember the infrastructure bill. There's no infrastructure bill yet. There's no tax reform. Which are his three? Those are his three things, and we don't even have a bill on any of them. That's why he's going to hang his hat on this this litany of jobs he saved. Right. He's going to talk about the pipeline, building the pipe. He's going to talk about the right. the, the plants that are coming home and all that. And it's you know it's entirely fictional, but it is pretty. Effective. And reportedly, he's going to announce a 10% uh, increase in military spending, which is $54 billion with a B dollars. Oh, right. We should say this. Usually, these, these speeches, especially in the first year, the joint session speeches, are an opportunity to discuss in human accessible terms the budget that you put to Congress, that you lay out for Congress. So, President Trump has a budget. Um, they have not released the details yet, but the outlines, as Tommy said, is huge increase in defense spending, drastic, drastic cuts to domestic programs uh, outside of Social Security and Medicare. He says he's not touching those, but that means education, health care for poor people, transportation. The EPA. EPA. It's just not environment. It's not really possible. <laughs> it's not yeah. pos- it's- the government is a giant insurance company. If you're not going to cut the cut the Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and then you're going to increase defense, there's, there's this tiny pool of money. And it, you can't obviously cut the interest we're paying on the debt. Um, so, a little bull Simpson action. So what, <laughs> but, but what that means is all that's left, all that's left is drastically reducing discretionary programs, which is absurd. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's also going to be dead on arrival. <laughs> to, there's a lot of stuff you can do budgetarily with just 50 votes, uh, moving money around. But to get rid of the caps on defense spending, which were put in place uh, by the sequester in the Obama administration, you need 60 votes in the Senate. He's not getting that yeah. for, do you for that kind of increase in defense spending. That's Stephen Miller's speechwriting, where he refers somehow to the blood of re- the red <laughs> blood of patriots. Uh, is going to effectively convince uh, the 10 Democrats the word blood will show up in the speech? Wh- the wait, blood what's... is red. The blood. What's the over-under of the duration of the attack on the media? <laughs> One minute? Two oh, minutes? interesting. Three I, minutes? That's interesting. Also, is he going to talk about Ivanka and her company? Because she's going to be there. He's going to be like, you know, my daughter's been treated terribly. It's a great ad opportunity. It's a great opportunity. He, yeah, he does a... not miss a chance. He's... Always be selling. He's got Sponsored a media content is being revolutionized by yeah. Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to do the ads like we do. He's yeah. going to do SeatGeek. He's going to do SeatGeek. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> if you couldn't get a spot yeah. at tonight's State of the Union, you should try SeatGeek next time. Yeah. Um, no, but the rumor is that he'll be more hopeful and optimistic than the inaugural. Sure. Low bar. Very sure. low bar. And that, yeah, and that he's going to convey action. And talk about infrastructure, an infrastructure package and tax reform, which are you know two things they've been talking about all along. We've yet to see much right. detail here. Also, by the way, two things that run in direct opposition to one another, given that by tax reform, they mean cut taxes on the wealthy and by infrastructure, they mean spending. So yeah, it's trillion dollars in spending. And, not, and he's also, by the way, on several occasions in several different ways, promised to balance the budget. I believe he's promised to do it instantly. So <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's going to be interesting because I, I don't think he's ever had to get this much in the detail on policy stuff. I mean, he's, he still no. may not, but it's hard to fill like a 40-minute speech with just platitudes. It also occurs to me that we should uh, brace ourselves for the gut-wrenching feeling of that guy saying, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, and in walks this devious moron. Do you think all the, do you think all the doofus Congress people who like show up at 8 o'clock in the morning so they could get a seat in the aisle and shake the president's hand will still be doing that this year? Yes, that was always like sort of a sad, uh, super sad. The they, worst. Got their, they got their fucking <laughs> selfie sticks. The worst, man. Members is, of the house. This is a bipartisan critique, by the way. Yeah, no, that yeah. Guy, oh, yeah, that's why I brought it up. Just the silliest people racing to sit on the floor like it's a, I don't know, like it's floor seats at the, the garden for something good. <laughs> the garden. Look at him. The garden. That's where it's the garden, Sporty, Madison like Square. Yeah, Sports. Madison Square. They built it above Penn Station, which they turned into a rat's den. <laughs> Anyway, we've we've gone far enough off topic that we can take a break. And when we come back, we will have Snapchat's Peter Hamby. Don't go anywhere. This is Pod Save America, and there's more on the way. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt raise a glass and there's always room for one more round ocean city maryland somewhere to smile about book your trip at oceocean.com with us on pod save america today we have in studio peter hamby Hey guys, how's it going? <laughs> Good. Thanks for having me in Los uh, Angeles. It is a pleasure to have you here, friend of the pod. Um, so you started at CNN as a campaign embed, right? You were uh, you were on the road covering campaigns. Uh, I was actually my first job at CNN was uh, in August 2005. I worked on the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, which Great is show. your favorite show, Great right? Show. Your did favorite you, show. Did you do the hologram? Uh, I, no, I do remember the hologram. <laughs> Happening I was now. in the press file at McCain's uh, party on election night in 2008 when Yellen Oof. appeared by a hologram. And like, 
a cavernous room of like hundreds of journalists just died laughing. <laughs> I would um, imagine so. It was um, never explained why the hologram was a better way to get the news. <laughs> like it was just, it was cool. Like I'm, I'm all for exploring the value like, of holograms. It seems like Jessica's available to just right. be on set. Well, just like, well, we got to use the hologram for something. We have one. That's the strength of CNN. It's just like resources everywhere around the world. Like we have one bajillion satellite trucks and camera people. Like we can just do whatever. Yelling. Um, but yeah, no, I worked, I started CNN in 2005, but then got into campaign reporting. I was an embed, right. a traveling producer on the OA campaign, and I covered uh, the state of South Carolina, Romney, Huckabee, Hillary, McCain, and Palin. So I covered like wow. everyone who lost. It's a great beat. Never covered Obama, although Tommy used to call me all the time on the press bus pitching terrible oppo. Terrible stories. Terrible <laughs> oppo. Um, we had a list of 10 reporters we had to call every day, and Hamby was one of my guys. There was so this... he would just hand the phone around to all the other people on the bus I had to call. He's like, I'm not biting anyone else. Yeah. Want <laughs> Tommy's garbage. There was a stick. We'd be on the bus, uh, and like this... Tommy or Hari would call all the reporters on the bus, and like my Blackberry would ring. Remember Blackberries? My oh, yeah. Blackberry would ring. Then I'd be like, nah. And then like the guy in front of me, his black bearing ring would be Tommy pitching the same garbage. Nah. Yeah. Tommy's uh, oppo was, yeah. I have this uh, story from the future that Hillary Clinton is going to lose to Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> it seems impossible. How about Stephanopoulos actually floating to Tom Perez? Like, are you ruling out a Hillary 2020 so bid? ridiculous. Why are we talking about I hate about that question. I, it's so awful. And everyone should just, I mean, it's like such a silly, she's not going to do it. You know what? Well, no, no, but that, I'll they said it, it. I'm ruling it out. <laughs> it's, it's ruled really out. I'm ruling it out. It's out. But, it's ruled out. But, the, <laughs> but then Hillary, who John Lovett uh, used to work for, yeah. uh, came Mentor, on. Mentor, protege. Yeah. Came mm-hmm. on. Or they played this video clip that I, I missed this, but I guess she did a video for the DNC meeting in Atlanta where she said, the future is resistance meets persistence. persistence. <sighs> Stop. Stop it. Please go away. Um, <laughs> just stop writing things. For, like, 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 she should just talk. Correct. <laughs> Correct. She should just talk, right? Just don't, who are you don't being have, careful for? Don't have lines Who are like you, you going to upset? Literally right. no just, one. just say whatever you want. Doesn't there's, matter. There's no consequences. <laughs> the What's most... going to happen? Just say whatever you want. <laughs> stop it. It's enough. Oh, my God. It's like, how much of this do we have to take? Just say whatever you want. You're free now. You're free, Hillary. Say whatever comes to your mind. It doesn't matter. Nothing's going to happen. Just go. It's your chance. This is the only way. The only way you can come back from this is just to let go. The most endearing thing about Hillary in the last two years was after she lost and all these sort of like social media pictures of her at like delis in Westchester yeah. surfaced where people are just taking selfies with her and she looks yeah. like a normal human being. She's been in the woods for months now. <laughs> going to going to plays on Broadway. Having fun. Good yeah. for her. Good for her. Yeah. Good for her. Um, so Peter, you left CNN what year? 2015. 2015. 2015. And that's when you went to Snapchat. Yes, I joined Snapchat then to so run, now you, uh, you run news. You run news at Snapchat you host an outstanding show called Good Luck America, mm-hmm. which everyone should check out if you haven't on Snapchat. It's coming back soon. It's coming back. March. Yeah. March. When, what, what date? March, March 7th. March 7th. And That's what right. channel is it on? Uh, oh, it's on your phone. It, it's, on, <laughs> it's on your internet-enabled mobile phone. Got it. Yeah. So I would imagine that being head of news at Snapchat and doing this show has given you a lot more freedom uh, to cover politics the way you want to cover it, right? Totally. Uh, what's, what's different about, like, what, what are some of the main differences you've, you've learned since leaving CNN with... Part of it is a little bit like what you guys are trying to accomplish with this, which is to not be wedded to not, not that you guys are journalists, even though Lovett thinks he's a journalist. He uh, he's I'm a journalist. And, and you know what I've learned? Journalism is easy. <laughs> we can dispute that. Uh, 
to for, sort of float above the news cycle, not be attached or wedded to the day-to-day Twitter back and forth. Like at CNN, for so long, I was on a beat, and every day you had to, you were, you know, incentivized to break news and you know prove you were the smartest in the industry. Here, you know, because we're reaching an audience of you know eighteen to thirty-year-olds who are just not watching cable news, right? And God bless them for that. We're, our goal is to kind of have a to use one of your words, like a relatable conversation about politics to explain yeah. the process, to get even deeper than so-and-so is going to Iowa today and even, you know, go, why Iowa? Like, why is mm-hmm. Iowa first? Like, right. I think a lot of people don't even know the basics about this stuff. And and the goal is to do it, you know, with a sense of humor and, and be smart about it. We book interviews. We interviewed President Obama. We interviewed Bernie, Jeb Bush, Paul Ryan, you know, all, all these, you know, major players who want to reach an audience of people who are not you know, engaged in the day-to-day Twitter jousting. We're trying to get Bernie. So it also seems like you guys do a cool job of, like, incorporating footage from real people at events. I mean, how do you how do you find that stuff? How do you incorporate that man-on-the-scene footage? Um, I, I think there are a lot of tropes in television news that are just sort of tiresome, mm-hmm. right? The, you know, part of it is just listening. I, you know, instead of going out to fulfill a narrative, just going out and, like, listening to people and see what they have to say, you know, when we interviewed President Obama, one of the best things he said in that interview was every good thing that's happened in this country is because young people drove it. Millennials are the largest demographic generation in this country. And I do think that in the sort of mainstream media conversation, young people are kind of left out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> it's amazing how smart and capable and interesting young people are when we go talk to them and listen to them. It's, it's, like, it's kind of simple. Um, why, and then part you... of it, part of it, one other thing to Tommy's point is, you know, we don't rely on any of the same old tropes, the sort of stand up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to track to whatever, like we're just inventing things on the fly. We're shooting with like a vertical, uh, camera so we can get vertical video for the phone. We're just, it's, it's, it's liberating to be creative. And I don't think that in TV news, you're given that freedom. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Why do you think traditional media outlets like CNN, MSNBC, Fox have such a hard time reaching young people? Um, that's a good question. Part of it is just is just habit. Um, you know, if you just is it a, but is it is it content? Is it form? Like what is? is I mean, because sometimes I just think we say this a lot that that when you watch CNN or MSNBC, it's a little bit of a dead language that they speak, right? That they're just it, it seems it sounds very officious. It sounds like. You know, the, yeah. it's just hard. It, they don't talk like normal human beings. That's the talk. point. And like, authenticity is a fetish in politics, mm-hmm. but it, 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 it should be in media as well. Um, you know, uh, especially when you're talking to a 19 year old, you know, I love Wolf. Like, Wolf is super nice. Wolf gave me his Wizards tickets when I worked at CNN, like the nice. best dude, but not the most sort of credible person for you know a teenager or 20 something like they want to hear someone who looks and talks and thinks like them uh i think the 
political inclinations of people under the age of 30 are, are very almost radically different from people over the age of 30 yeah. these days. And then part of it is just like people don't have time. Like I talk about this all the time with with my friends. Like this was the first year I didn't watch a whole baseball game like in, in my whole life because people increasingly just in, like spending their time on their phones. They're busy and people are getting news about sports and politics and whatever uh, on the fly, on their way to their next thing, when they're online at Starbucks, and they're not taking the time to sit down and watch an hour of a cable news panel where people are uh, having mindless debate and corroding facts because you're injecting, like, you know, a, a, someone in there who's just making stuff up. I mean, the notable exception is people sitting listening to 45 minute podcasts. Well, yeah. but the difference, though, is that you can do that on your own time whenever you right, choose. Right, right, right. You um, can do this at the gym. You could do it in the shower. You I could do, do it, it on your commute. Yeah. There's a lot of places where you can listen to Pod Save America, and they're all great. Yeah. I do it at the gym when I'm deadlifting and doing squats and working on my lats. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were more of a core guy. So, <laughs> Peter, can we ask you about some of these? You, I heard you had a chance to talk to Sean Spicer recently. I'm wondering how he. Sean how Spicer, he doing? friend of the pod. How is our friend of the pod, Sean, Sean Spicer, doing? There's a lot of reports invitation. Out there. You know that you're welcome here. There's a lot of squirrely reports out there. There's reports that Sean Spicer is bringing his staff into meetings, going through their phones, accusing them of leaks, and then that meeting immediately. Immediately leaked. There's reports about him locking media outlets of press briefings. There's locks. Uh, there's you know they're putting out the deputy press secretary instead of Sean on the Sunday shows. Like, is he okay? Look, Sean is such a. F- it's so funny to see him become a famous person. Like I forget the poll and I forget the number, but I think it was some poll had Sean Spicer's name ID mm-hmm. among Americans at like forty percent. Like how many? Like. That's crazy Sean for a press Spicer secretary. Is a household name. Imagine Sean Spicer, Spicer you are having that. so famous. Come on the pod. He <laughs> loves being famous. He loves it. But that's the thing. So Sean is such a confounding character, especially right now, because he has such long relationships with people in Washington, especially on the political side. People who covered him, you know, at the RNC mm-hmm. or during the campaign and well before that, and he craves. Uh, like the party circuit in Washington. He loves seeing his name in print. Like he just loves it. He loves it. He loves it. He loves it. Totally. DC scene guy. Like the people who defend uh, Sean Spicer when he's criticized in print are like Doug High. Right. I love you, Doug. But like Ron Bonjean, mm-hmm. like the the same names that have been people, around Washington. People who've been sending Playbook Spotted for years. Correct. Yes. That's Correct. the demo. That's and he, the demo. He loves being in Playbook. If you were at Cafe Milano... Yeah. With Tammy Haddad, <laughs> we should have uh, we should have said hi to Sean when we were at PJ Clarks with him. Anyway, <laughs> you should have. He would have loved it. He'll He'd probably come it. on the pod at some point. We'll get him. Um, if he, as long as he doesn't listen. Yeah. <laughs> so we we, I, I, we were filming uh, Good Luck America at CPAC. Uh, my eighth straight CPAC, by the way. I've been nice. to eight CPACs in a row. That's that's the wood anniversary. Was this the craziest one so far? <laughs> uh, it was it was weird. It was the weirdest one so far. No governors, senators, members of Congress, maybe like one or two. Um, and Trump's taken over the Republican Party, but also like CPAC has taken over the White House. Like they run right, the yeah. world. Yeah. Right. Like Sebastian Gorka, who one, two, three years ago at CPAC would wander around begging for interviews, was now saying uh, no interviews. It's got to be pre-cleared by the White House. Like stay away from me. Like was that some accent whoa. work? Yeah, I thought it was, oh, very, it was good. Good. great. It's not it just like great. Thanks, I'm good at impressions. Good. Uh, I'll do a good. Bernie one for you later. Ooh. Um, hello. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> that sounds like my Russian accent. Too. <laughs> hello, <laughs> hello. Um, so we interviewed Spicer, and and he, 
like he'll bash you and lash the media and criticize you. He talked about how his thing about how the First Amendment is a two way street and like that, it's the president's. That's first, not true. It's, that's not a fact. That's not actually what it is. It's actually yeah. a one way street. <laughs> it is literally one way. Yes. Well, he said it's the president's right to call the media fake news. That's his First Amendment right. Oh, but fine. he'll do this with a with with a scowl and, and he'll point your finger at you. And then when you're done, he's like, "Hey, thanks, man. Like, you know, let's let, you know, I'll see you later. Let's hang out." And I suspect a lot that's a lot of the dynamic at play in the White House briefing room. Um, yeah. And I've never been a White House reporter, and I'm really actually happy about that because it does seem like a, a hot, hot house of horrors in there. Yeah. Um, but. Look, I, the the media outlets who who rage about the end of democracy because Spicer is saying that Politico and BuzzFeed can't come in the gaggle today, like I don't think those are the battles to pick. I mean, I think it's troublesome, yeah. but at the same time, like this is the this is the the battlefield they're choosing to play on. Um, you know, John Harris and Ben Smith both put out statements after that that were just like, we're just not going to get distracted by this. And that's the right way to yeah. to say like it's not like the, the we have never seen anything like this in the history of our democracy. Well, you know, we actually have. Like Nixon uh, actually threatened local news stations and national TV networks saying, "Hey, you know, uh, you know, uh, be ashamed of something happening to your FCC license." You know, think that's not happening, and it's a different world now, but mm-hmm. I don't think that most people care about these um day-to-day journalism wars I, I think they matter deeply and i care about journalism i love being a journalist but trust in the media has dropped it's in its biggest drop since the iraq war between 2015 and 2016 but most people can't caring shouldn't be the standard i agree with you that they shouldn't I, I agree with that like you know i you know you see this like that's sort of like kellyanne conway will say this or even sean will say this like you know this has already been asked and answered and people just don't care about it that may that's not may, the standard it's not the standard right. but i do agree i feel like there's a little bit of when they're kicked out of, say, the gaggle, and basically, you know, Sean Spicer didn't let a few outlets that have been critical of the White House into this daily gaggle uh, that he, where he talks to reporters, which is, was, you know, not something that happened in a long time. Anyway, uh, it feels almost as if they're trying to set a marker down because there's so much fear as to how bad it could get, that it could get to FCC licenses, yeah. that it could get much more hostile to the press. They're kind of over-twerking because they're afraid of what this could be a month or two months or six months from now. I, I think that's right. And, like, we still don't know. And I think... Has anything alarmed you that Trump has said or done uh, towards the press? Yes. I think the scrambling of what is true, like generally every single day, Um, even at CPAC, this is a small thing he does. I mean, he did it and Peter Alexander did such a good job calling him on at that time when he was just like uh, about the Electoral College thing. Oh, right. That the Electoral College victory is not relevant to people getting, uh, you know, higher wages or (laughs) health care. And in that sense, it's like, can we just stop talking about this? Right. But. Calling him out on just making stuff up on the fly, like, that was great. And he did it at CPAC. He said, we were in the speech, and he said, there's a line outside of CPAC that goes six blocks for people waiting to get in. Um, Not only was there no line... There are not six blocks in National <laughs> Harbor. <laughs> like we literally went outside and walked around. There's four blocks, the, and uh, so like these ca- the casual lying, the casual lying is, is 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 very scary to me, and that there is an entire ecosystem that welcomes it. For, like there mm-hmm. were people at CPAC that we talked to who might not be inclined to love Trump. Like maybe they were for Cruz, or maybe they were for uh, Marco Rubio. Like who's John Lovett's favorite um, yeah. Republican? But, like, the media attacks, they love. It, like, makes him stronger. He's, like, an evil superhero villain who, like, gets stronger when you attack him. Like, they just love, love, love when he attacks the media. So there's always people 
rushing to defend him on that. But and the media likes not... talking about the media. Well, that's the other thing. It's well, just like, but, but that's my question, right? It's like it, it's in, it's very frustrating to see press reporters take the bait and start tweeting <coughs> alternate Jefferson quotes at Trump because uh, he missed. Right? That stuff is silly. Okay, <laughs> but but what does kind of make me nervous is this steady erosion of access, including locking CNN or the LA Times and New York Times out of the gaggle and allowing in Breitbart and the Washington Times and others. And I'm wondering. The, the, the White House Correspondents Association is supposed to be the entity that stands up and fights back for this sort of access. But the head of it was in the gaggle, Jeff, he, Mason. Jeff Mason from Reuters. So I'm like, what could they be doing better? Because clearly they're losing this fight every single day. Look, I think that part of it is there's not a lot you can do. And, and, and to be honest, like Obama did this as well. I mean, remember when Obama did famously like Between Two Ferns? And like he interviewed – he did an interview with us on Snapchat. The, the sort of um, – you know, protected class of Washington media was like in an uproar because he was He's talking to YouTube stars. Right. I mean, the <laughs> he was literally reaching, I think, like 50 million people when he did that, mm-hmm. like like across all of their social platforms. There's not a lot they can do. I mean, like, Tommy, your joke is like, what is Jeff going to write a sternly worded letter <laughs> yeah. to Mr. Yeah. Trump? Like, um, this, the statements that the Correspondents Association puts out are so political. It's, just, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, yeah. it's like want, straight from a press secretary's office. We, we, somehow the press corps needs to figure out how they need a communications director. They need citizens to understand why this is hurting them. And, and that link is just not being made. I also think that it is true that this does come back to reporters showing solidarity inside the briefing. And I did like that there was some, some entity that was in that gaggle put out a statement saying if we had knew, known that these other outlets were kept out, we wouldn't have gone. You know, Glenn Thrush shouted a mm-hmm. really important question at Spicer. So Spicer made an offhand comment about recreational marijuana versus medical marijuana, and he started shouting a question, and Sean's like, this is not a schoolroom, you're being a bad boy, whatever, nonsense. And he shouted to the reporter after, like, ask my follow-up, ask my follow-up, and no one did. <laughs> but 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 they should. They need to start following up. And also, by the way, in part because, stop, no one gives a shit about your one question. You getting your question is, is an old way of thinking about this. Well, that's the thing. A lot of, a lot of I, I understand the DNA and the synapses of, of political reporters. Like, they want to impress their boss at their network, right? And mm-hmm. it's not necessarily always about, like, getting to the truth and, like, sort of Wait playing, like... What? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you, Do you need to I'm take a break? floored. <laughs> I am floored. Continue. <laughs> uh, to Tommy's question, or uh, related to that, like... One thing that I do like in the sort of collective, you know, journalist uproar right now is this idea that we do need to educate the population, you know, both on media literacy, but like how important information is. Like, I know this is a preoccupation Mm -hmm. of of President Obama, but like the media isn't just like a fraction or of, of the political conversation. It's not just a megaphone for political leaders or a filter for political leaders. It's like almost the whole ball game at this point. Absolutely, like it is everything. Yeah. How information travels in 2017 is is an enormous part of a functioning, stable democracy, and people need to understand that. Um, you know, Infowars is not on the same plane as you know USA Today. You you mentioned uh, the huge drop in media trust between 2015 and, and 2016. Do you think how much of that do you think is ideological? Meaning, you know, conservatives not trusting liberal outlets, liberal outlets not trusting conservative outlets, or do you think it's something different? Where do you think that the the fallen trust comes from? I think a part of it is is relevance and usefulness. I think that if you do turn on cable, what like a lot of times, just like what is this? This is not making me smarter. 
in fact, it might be making me dumber. Most of the time. Um, it's not giving me like the five things I need to know today. I think that... Um, it's not entertaining. It's not certainly not yourself. entertaining. You don't you you hate yourself, <laughs> right. uh, and then you end up like hate tweeting. Yes. Uh, it's just a downward spiral. I think part of it is also just the way we get information. Like I think um, one of my favorite media critics right now is John Herman, who's writing the New York Times. And yeah. He wrote a really great, a great piece. piece, so good about how the media, to use his words, the mainstream media uh, in Washington, the sort of Acela New York DC media, is quote unquote decentered. And, and they don't know how to grapple with that. In other words, the mainstream press can't even begin to fathom like the the margins of the conversation happening about politics today. In other words, it's not just happening on social media. It's happening in like weird subreddits and it's happening in text messages and, and group me's. It's just like all over the place. Like I don't we can't even begin to understand how uh, fractional. The White it's House weird press because has we're become. all on Twitter, and when you're on Twitter, you think like that's the whole universe. No, and it's nothing. And a guy, <laughs> this like really smart, handsome guy I know, wrote a whole paper about uh, <laughs> Twitter uh, in 2013 about how I believe it was called "Did Twitter Kill the Boys on the Bus?" That's it by uh, Peter Hamby. Inter- we interviewed Tommy Vitor for that. <laughs> Did uh, you really? It was a great. Yeah. It's a great paper. I read that whole paper. Long, long, it was long very thing. Long. Um, it's long. I, if it's uh, you can ask me any questions about what was on the first like third of it. <laughs> First third, okay. Well, one of the one of the points in there was that which everyone knows now is like like only a fraction of the country is is using that, and it's mostly journalists and and political people and people's moms and dads aren't 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 doing that every day, and it's just yeah. it's just it's a narrow conversation. It seems like I, I feel like one of the reasons it's so hard to watch cable news is that and 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 it's part of this larger problem of of, of why it feels so unnecessary is. It lost the authority, but it kept the voice of authority. Yes, right? that's it. It still sounds, you know, it's still somebody projecting like, this is what happened today. These are the facts. But uh, it's too silly. It's too sensational. It doesn't actually cover the vast majority of what's actually going on in the news. And it's this sort of husk competing to try to keep you keep you engaged. Like, see, we're still important. You still need to get your news from us, right? Right? Well, no? Okay. Well, the av- <laughs> and that, that answer's better than I did. Favreau's question earlier, just like why it's not doesn't work for young people. The the, the fact check me on this, loyal pod listeners, but I think the the median age list viewer of CNN is like sixty one. The median age viewer of MSNBC is like sixty five. Fox is like sixty eight or something. Right. Like the that. median age of, of a Fox News viewer is a sarcophagus in the museum. <laughs> it is uh, King Common is their median viewer. Okay. What, what's but, the equivalent but, for you? Eighteen to thirty four year old. Wow. The kids people, are on the Snapchat guys. Yeah. Thirty five million people watched our election day live coverage on Snapchat. 35 that, million people. That's a monster number. We, so Good Luck that, America reached 22 bigger, million. Is that bigger than the Situation Room? <laughs> Slightly. Is that bigger than Morning As Brian Stelzer will tell you, you cannot compare web views to TV views. Uh, uh, it's, it's a substantial audience. Uh, it's a huge audience. And Good Luck America, the show that I have, reached 22 million people during the campaign last year. The, but you, that, were that indoctr- whole... you were indoctrinating a lot of young people there. People don't know this. Uh, maybe, um, but but love its point. The, the whole voice of God shtick, yeah. which was viable thirty years ago, stopped being viable ten years ago, and it still continues. But we, we, right? we should say that there's been a bit of a resurgence in 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 cable since Trump was elected president, right? Like CNN. You, I want to hear your thoughts on Jeff Zucker going from a, a Trump enabler to a Trump nemesis now. Um, but there's reporters like Jake Tapper who've been yeah. doing really tough interviews. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you have? Have they gotten better or is this just sort of temporary or what, what are your thoughts? on I that? agree with you. Uh, 
on Jake's show. I really, yeah. I really like watching it. Um, and I know you guys have had your battles with Jake over the year, but uh, which is why we can it. praise him now. Yeah, right? Love Jake. Yeah, we screamed with Jake. <laughs> yeah, and we did an interview with, with Tapper last year during the campaign, and he, you know, he he said, you know, the, the truth isn't between like left and right. Like it's not somewhere in the middle between two of these poles. Like it just it is what it is, and I'm right. going to try to get at. Would that. you say I that the, the truth more important now than ever? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Would you say democracy dies in darkness? <laughs> this is us quoting newspaper slogans. What do you think about newspaper Peter? slogans, guys? They're so dumb. I really like democracy dies in the darkness. I think it's I think really? it's cool. I think it's super oh. intense. I think the Times <laughs> one is a, they were so close. They were so close so, to something good. But having been in communications and PR and like branding meetings, you just know how it went. Like yeah, you right. know, they yeah, hired yeah. a firm. You know, they all sat there. There was like. 25 slides there was poll for oh, sure yeah. wait, for wait. sure but, but that was <laughs> but that was sorry but what, what? let's get back on track from no, the I, no, I know we will get right back but I just think democracy dies in the darkness feels like they stuck with their first idea the times one that thing is by committee and it's like the truth now more important than ever what are you talking about right <laughs> sorry we so, should move okay. on <laughs> so your reach is indisputably greater than I think almost any of the news outlets we're talking about New York Times Washington Post ABC CNN one, but do you think that new entities like Snapchat are going to invest in like hardcore investigative reporting like those outlets do? Because that to me seems to be the single most important thing to get done during the Trump era. So to that point, uh, like the the value, I, I think the value of, of old school legacy reporting. Like I went to journalism school. Like which I know sounds Whoa. weird uh, now, but like it's more important than ever. Um, we we care about that. Um, CNN, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Economist, uh, all of these publishers are on Snapchat, on Discover, and they're they're curating and putting that content onto Snapchat every day. Mm-hmm. So you can read it on Snapchat. So yes, the short answer is we do care. Got it. Yeah. Um, I think the tougher thing here is getting people to care, read, absorb all these great investigative pieces. Because I think in, in this world we're in now, it's like you see this investigative piece with like a byline of like five or six people and you can't imagine how much resources and time went into right. it. And because the news cycle is the way it is and there's Twitter and everything, else, it like disappears after a day. It you know? can. Like It's funny. Some things take so much work. That, that was another part of the, the Twitter paper was, you know, you could have a shoddy piece of reporting and a triple bylined like New York Times piece that went through like 75 editors in the right way, both hitting Twitter at equal weight. Right. And like in, a lot of times, even the, the crappy one will take off and the other one will get ignored. And that's mm-hmm. deeply frustrating. It's, the, um, it's also it actually plays into what has been a White House strategy throughout these early days of the administration, which is you, you know, you'll see a kind of a less well-sourced story that has some errors in it and you'll have a really excellent dead to rights story on the White House and the White House will say, look at these two stories. These people aren't getting it right at all because they can they can hold these both things up side oh, by that, side. That happened with Grinbaum's piece about um, how Trump sort of mastered the tabloid media. This was in the New York Times and mm-hmm. like has is learning that Washington's a different beast. Um, and then I think Spicer seized on this idea that he was not born in New England, yes. but like grew up in New England. <laughs> he and he refused was like, to say where he was born. And, and that that's the challenge of covering this White House is they will literally like you could have a comma out of place and they'll be like fake news this is terrible right. they will like eviscerate the reporter um it, again that puts the onus on journalists to be sharper than ever yeah i was gonna say so what's what's your one piece of advice maybe from the twitter paper that no one has still followed yet that could improve uh political journalism um i'm a campaign hack so i mean it, it was a little frustrating actually that 
uh, you know, I interviewed like 70 people from the Obama campaign and the Romney campaign and people like y'all on both sides of the aisle. And, and they were like, I think next time we should just be a little more considered before we tweet. We should, you know, send people out into the country and not cover the bubble and whatever happens on Twitter mm-hmm. every day. And that's the opposite. <laughs> it's literally the opposite of what happened. Like, so, go read the paper and be like, oh, I think we could have done better if we had just read this thing. And I don't want to toot my own horn. It's just like, yeah. it was frustrating that during the primaries in the general, you were just turning on cable and it'd be like, hey, it's a whole un- unedited, unchallenged uh, Trump uh, speech once again. You know, and I think that like... <laughs> Getting just getting people outside of the bubble and covering issues. I know it sounds like like hokey, but right. a lot. I think a lot of people people don't trust. A lot of the reason people don't trust the media is just that is it's not relevant. Right. Like during the final final month of the campaign, I was in Ohio all the time, and every single day, local news front page, uh, local news broadcast, everything that everyone down ballot was talking about was uh, prescription painkiller abuse and what it was doing all over the state. Uh, teenagers and young people were dying. It was a crisis. No one in the media was talking about national media. No one in the Trump or Hillary, like they weren't really talking about it. And like, but that's the only thing people cared about. Mm, that's a great and it example. wasn't being talked about in the political conversation. So like, if I, if, if, if I'm in Cuyahoga County and everyone is dying of opioids and then I turn on the news and they're talking about uh, uh, Don Jr.'s Skittles tweet, that's, <laughs> so depressing <laughs> yeah it's, it's so depressing it's also though it's it's funny because it's 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 not just what's being covered on television there's this bifurcation inside of media outlets themselves because you look at like you look at like the major networks they still do great investigative reporting you look at cnn still does great investigative reporting and great interviews um buzzfeed all of them they everyone is doing great investigative reporting but it gets swamped by the volume and that's that's a really smart point too there are so many good journalists out there who are working their ass off and doing such good stuff somewhere between the reporting in the field and the research and all that stuff and the big editorial decisions that are getting made about right. what's going on the front page of the site and the paper what's going what's leading the news tonight those are executives and boss people back in New York or DC so there's this gap between the stuff that's being done and the editorial decisions about what's going to lead right. and that distance is a big challenge. I mean, that's what, yeah, it's funny. We've talked about this before, like choosing our focus of our ire and it's not the reporters. It's the, it's the decisions being made about what is actually getting airtime. 100%. The overlap of where financial considerations come into play. I mean, it's a very challenging thing. I mean, it, it's everything. I mean, the, the moon vest quote from the campaign was damning, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That has been good for CBS. It's everything. I mean, like the, you know, all the TV networks sold out their ad inventory, you know, well before election day people are tuning in i mean but that again that funds the like the, the six byline cnn piece well source story right yeah. about russia right so that there's a bit of a give and take there i just think the choices that are made during a campaign are are troubling is well, there a positive note we can end on <laughs> I mean, well yeah. i do think this i do think this um you know, for as kind of annoying as the kind of stelter Margaret Sullivan, like, this is what journalists need to do now thing is. I mean, and they could have written that, quite frankly, six years ago right. under Obama mm-hmm. and said these things under Obama. Um, it, recommitting 
this gets said over and over again, but like recommitting to the basic principles of journalism, not just taking handouts from the flax and kissing up to the administration. Like that stuff is just more important than ever. And and really just having a fealty to finding out the truth and doing and just standing up and pressing the president or Spicer or whomever about what's true and what's not. Also, to your point about millennials not turning on cable TV, I do think it's really important and helpful and useful at this age of where people are more engaged and activists than ever, that they have alternative ways of finding real political news on Snapchat, on social media. I mean, through their, you know, fake news is obviously a problem, but like curated stuff like you're doing gives people great information in a way they want to find it. And so I think that's a hopeful note. Yeah. And on that note, Peter Hamby. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. Sadly, this deletes in 24 hours. (laughs) (laughs) That's a shame. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode of Pod Save America, there are other great new and archived episodes you should go check out. Subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And also, check out Tommy Vitor's podcast, Pod Save the World. Subscribe to that one and don't miss a new episode of Pod Save the World every Wednesday. Thanks again to Peter Hamby for joining us. We will be back on Thursday with another Pod Save America. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed.